You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome. (laughs) All right. Welcome to Vernacular Podcast, episode two. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And today we're going to talk to Elena, and she has some really interesting stories, so we're going to be talking to her. She's, uh, let's see, worked in Dearborn, Michigan with uh, Arab Muslim populations. She's traveled to Thailand uh, to do a master's degree, and she has uh, now returned to the States and is working for a psychiatric services center in Chicago, where she's also doing work with urban prison ministries. Yeah, she's really been all over the place, and she's as you pointed out, been doing different jobs along the way. Now, if you were wondering why I was cracking up when we started this episode, it's because uh, we had just tried introducing a podcast episode where Sally introduced the the episode and she said, welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. <laughs> because normally when we do this, I say, welcome to Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach, and then she says, I'm Sally. So when she was introducing it, she said, I'm Zach. That's what I get for trying to change things up, I guess. <laughs> we should just stick with what works. Uh, we, we we contemplated just sticking with that because it would have been very funny, but we didn't. Alas. So here we are, episode 02, which is 02 because there's a 00. If you haven't listened to 00, feel free to do so. It explains a little bit more about our podcast and what we're about so this is our second full-length episode, our third podcast, I guess. Yeah, so, a little confusing, but yeah. yes. So second full-length episode, we have a full show lined up for you today. We're going to start with your tip of the week. We're going to go in talk, go in and talk about the Baltimore riots that have been dominating the news recently. And then we're going to talk about Mumford & Sons' new album that just came out the day that we recorded, which was Monday. Um, what was that? The 4th? 4th, yeah. The 4th. Um, so very exciting lineup for you today. And then we'll talk to Elena about all her, all her stuff. So we're pretty excited, but first it is your hashtag tip of the week. Hashtag tip of the week. You can look that hashtag up on Twitter. We're probably not the <laughs> only sure ones who use tip trending of the week. now. <laughs> um, yeah. So your tip of the week. So we thought that with Memorial day coming up, we could talk about grilling. Sally and I have had some adventures and misadventures in grilling lately. And so yeah, we thought- in the past- I guess three weeks or so. Yeah. Uh, we thought it'd be a good time to share our accumulated wisdom. <laughs> and it's more than just three weeks of wisdom. We've been grilling for a little bit longer than that. Right. We've only had our own grill, though, for that time. Right. So we uh, we just got a grill recently. Uh, Sally bought it for me for my birthday. So we're pretty excited about this. And we've been trying a whole bunch of different things on there. And like we said, wanted to share a few of our ideas with you. Yeah. We've grilled burgers, chicken, I guess... Uh, grilled Barbecue vegetables. chicken, grilled vegetables. Yeah, and just different kinds of chicken, different kinds of burgers, so yeah, different marinades yeah. and stuff like that. I was hoping um, to try fish soon. Yeah, we're going to make some fish tacos coming up. We have some company coming over and are going to try fish tacos for the first time. Grilled fish tacos. not sure why we're trying a new recipe when company's coming over. Because but. we're bold. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. But first, let's talk burgers. So two tips for burgers uh, that we want to share with you. The first is... When you're making a burger, and this is a new tip that I've only recently tried based on the recommendation of a couple cookbooks we have, but when you're making your burgers, put butter in the ground beef itself when you form your, your burgers. And you can do that one of two ways. One, just stick a, 
a few tablespoons of butter into your big mass of burger meat before you form the individual patties and blend it through that. That that worked. We, I did that once. The other way, which I thought worked ex- exceptionally well, was to basically make a flat, a, a very flat patty, you know, basically a, a large flat patty. and Then make an indentation. Right. Then make an indentation in that, put a, a, a dab of butter there, and then fold it in over itself, basically, so the butter is sitting at the center of the patty. And then the idea is that as it cooks, that butter will really heat up and give you a nice, even uh, finish throughout the entire burger, uh, but also keep it really, really juicy because it uh, adds some natural juices to the burger and seals the the burger's own juices in there as well. So that worked pretty well. Uh, the second tip is after you form your burger, create a little a divot, almost like a golf ball sized divot in the burger itself. The reason being the, the the majority of the mass of the burger is at the center of the burger, and so when the center of the burger gets hot, it'll expand the mass, and that's why sometimes you're small burgers end up looking more like meatballs when they're done because <laughs> the middle just expands and then you have this ball. You know, essentially a giant meatball. So to avoid that, have a little golf ball size divot in the burger itself, in the patty, and then as that expands, it, it should level off and create a nice even top over the entire burger. So I've, I've worked with that trick for a couple of years now and it works really, really well. Highly recommend that. Yeah, it's a lot easier to stack your toppings on top of a patty-shaped burger than a ball-shaped burger. Right, who would have thought? (laughs) So the divot in the burger and the butter in the ground beef itself, and then a different topic, not burgers, but I also recommend getting a grill tray or a grill basket to do things like grilled vegetables. Uh, I just got that from my sister and brother-in-law for my birthday. And we made some delicious grilled vegetables on it the other day. It worked really, really well. Yeah, and it's really nice because you can instead of roasting the vegetables inside, heating up your house when it's already warm outside because it's already in the 80s here and we're only in the early April, early May, um, you can cook your vegetables outside and keep all that heat outside of the house. Yeah, so that is another thing we recommend. All right, that wraps up our hashtag tip of the week. Let us know how your grilling experiments go over the next few weeks leading up to Memorial Day. Yes, reach out Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com or find us on Twitter at vernacularpod. Tell us your tips so we can share them on the show. All right, now Elena's going to join us to talk about Baltimore. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We are sitting here with Elena. Or we're sitting here with the computer that's Skyping with Elena. Uh, and we are looking forward to talking to her about her stories. But before we do that, we're going to go through our first two segments of this podcast. So first, the current events and then the lifestyle. For our current events segment today, we want to talk about the Baltimore riots that have been one of the major domestic news stories of the past, really past two weeks probably. Um, so these were instigated by the death of Freddie Gray, who's a 25-year-old resident of Baltimore, African-American man, who was taken into police custody in mid-April, I'm not sure the exact date, and sustained severe spinal cord injuries while he was in police custody. Uh, I think it was while he was in the back of a police van after being taken into custody. And he ended up succumbing to those injuries and dying a week later on the 25th. So after his death uh, while in police custody... There were a lot of people who organized peaceful protests. And so this was uh, in late April then. The protests started peacefully, but they quickly spiraled out of control. 
And even though there were peaceful protesters throughout, there were also uh, violent protesters who started rioting, looting stores, burning cars, etc. Uh, so much so that it was uh, that the mayor of uh, Baltimore, Stephanie Rawlings Blake, had to declare a city emergency, and the governor had to order the National Guard in as well. Uh, and it affected really the daily life of the city and caused uh, caused it to come to a standstill for at least a few days. Uh, the ba- Baltimore Orioles had to play a game to an empty stadium. School was canceled, right? Yeah, school was canceled throughout the city. May um, still be canceled. Uh, I'm not sure what the status is on the school. Yeah, we'd have to check on that. But it may still be out. I mean, the, the protests are ongoing. I mean, they're, they're certainly not at their peak anymore, which is a good thing that the violence has subsided. But um, it was pretty hairy there for a while. Uh, I know the Baltimore Orioles, they played their game, and it was the first time in Major League history, going back even into the 19th century, that the official attendance at a major league game was zero. That's crazy. Yeah. So really the point here is that it stopped the city entirely and uh, put everything on hold. And it drew a lot of comparisons to Ferguson, Missouri last year when uh, there were violent protests after the uh, acquittal of Darren Wilson. Or maybe acquittal is the wrong word, but after the the grand jury decided not to indict uh, Officer Darren Wilson in the shooting of Michael Brown. So um, I thought we could talk about that with you, Elena, because you have some experience uh, working in urban populations. And I guess the first question I have for you is, in working with urban populations, have you been able to sense a a palpable tension between the communities uh, of America's cities and the law enforcement uh, who are supposed to serve them? In the time that I spent on in Englewood and Woodlawn and those communities, um, I did definitely see some tension with law enforcement and the kids around there. You know, they grow up kind of wary. It's, it's, it's definitely tense because you've got law enforcement who will, um, you know, they'll stand along the, the, the walkways and the, in the crosswalks because, um, the way that gang lines are in Chicago, um, or in that area of Chicago, you know, you might have to go north two blocks and then east a block and then south two blocks in order to get where you're going instead of just going a block east because of the way that the gang lines are. So the cop and and you don't know what's going to happen when you're walking to and from school. So it deters kids from even getting to school on a weekday um, because they don't know what kind of enemies are around the corner. So you've got the cops there for protection, but at the same time, you don't really necessarily trust the cops. Um, and the cops will be kind of forceful sometimes. I know a, a guy who, um, who has kind of a, a ministry in, um, in that neighborhood and he's kind of been a place of refuge for kids who've gotten into trouble and, um, you know, are looking for a, a place to stay. Um, and so the cops will come looking for the kid and they'll be kind of pushy or they'll try to force their way in. And, and the cops are totally legitimate in, in what they're trying to do, but maybe not doing it in the best way. So it's just, it's tension is definitely high, um, between the, um, the kids in those communities and law enforcement, you know, and, and law enforcement, it's not necessarily, male or female or black or white or, you know, Hispanic, it's all, it's everything. And it's, it's just, um, it's still tense just because of the, the authority situation there. You know, when uh, I was watching the news stories about what was going on in Baltimore, I was thinking, wow, it's hard to believe this is actually America. And I think it's really yeah. easy for a lot of us who are, are insulated from those situations, uh, comfortable where we are to realize that these things are going on within our own country. 
uh, I remember seeing, uh, oddly enough, a, a internet documentary on YouTube called um, Sh- Chirac that basically mm, compares yeah. the south side of Chicago to Iraq. And I was thinking more about that power vacuum as you were talking uh, and about how these these police that were in the documentary, because it was basically a documentary filmed with ride-alongs. You know, the, the guys would ride with the police as they went around the city. Uh, and they would talk about exactly what you were saying, how they can't go in certain sections because of gang violence there. Um, or, you know, th- that's basically gang operating areas. And, and so the police know to stay away. And there's sort of this unspoken accord between the two that each has their own territory uh, to do their own thing in. Well, I think, um, I mean, even the kids, a lot of people use the term Chirac um, in talking about Chicago and and a lot of the gang problems uh, that are there. But um, I think that's such a, it's a really, it's a term that I think um, certain uh, people who are trying to help again help fight the violence are definitely trying to avoid that term because it casts the light that there's only bad things in Chicago that it, it you know that the South Side and and Englewood is only violent and that it's a war zone and but there's so much good that goes on there too so but when you when you put things in such a polarized uh, view polarized perspective it's hard to um, to let the good come out of that and for people to kind of cross those huge divides when you when you paint them in such dramatic colors yeah that's interesting that you say that because I think just looking at the news about Baltimore that a similar polarization and perspective has um, occurred with respect to those stories because we're just hearing so many negative stories that are true and real but it's just giving us this sense that it's only it's only a negative situation that there aren't positive stories and positive um, working together of community members that that's happening there that everyone is angry and no one is is achieving any any good from the situation um, and we actually just in preparing for this podcast came across some great examples of positive work that's being done in, in Baltimore specifically uh, one was providing uh, lunches for kids that were in school in Baltimore. So, uh, like Sally mentioned in the beginning, during these Baltimore riots, uh, public schools were closed. And that was a problem because there are about 85,000 public school students, yeah. uh, the majority of which rely on the schools to give them their lunches uh, on their, their lunch programs because they don't have enough money to buy their own food on a daily basis. So they benefit from the school lunch programs. Free and reduced program. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So we had, you know, uh, tens of thousands. I'm not sure what the exact number on kids who were on the lunch programs was, but tens of thousands uh, of kids who were all of a sudden out of lunch because the schools were closed. And so there was this hashtag that was trending, uh, Baltimore lunch. It might still be trending if schools are still closed. I haven't checked. Uh, But this mobilized thousands of lunches to be prepared and uh, delivered to students who were there. And there were a lot of community places. I read about this um, neat sounding coffee house called Red Emma's in Baltimore that uh, hosted kids to give them a free lunch. And there were a lot of churches and community centers in the city that did the same thing. So that was kind of a cool uh, human interest story that came out of the Baltimore riots. And obviously it's a positive story um, and, you know, it doesn't, doesn't, uh, do anything to uh, uh, mitigate the sadness of uh, Mr. Gray's death at all. But it is, I think, um, a story that needs to be told from from this, you know, so we do see uh, a pretty ugly side of humanity with uh, um, the 
the death of Freddie Gray and the possibility that, that was caused by police misconduct and then the violence of the reaction to the protest. But we also see people coming together uh, to make sure children get fed, for example. Yeah, and similarly, yeah. Thousand, um, I think 3,000 people have signed up over the past couple of weeks to help clean up Baltimore. Um, so it's just kind of an, a good example, another good example of community bonding and working together to to try to overcome the experiences that they've had recently and try to move past them. Um, and there was even a guy going around delivering pizza in his pickup truck to all the, the workers, <laughs> which was kind of cool. <laughs> um, and then I don't know if, did you see the, um, the Dan- Michael Jackson impersonator who, um, yeah. yeah. So uh-huh. <laughs> Dimitri Reeves, um, he was dancing to Michael Jackson tunes, just like amidst the protests, he got on top of a truck and was dancing to beat it. And then he danced like far into the night and it just became like this dance party. Other protesters were joining him and dancing on top of the truck. And there were a lot of pretty funny YouTube videos yeah. of this guy, um, <laughs> Uh, if you want to see, you can head to our our Twitter feed, Vernacular Pod, and check it out. We've uh, we've retweeted something from a Baltimore reporter who uh, had a pretty good clip of this guy. Or you can just search Dimitri Reeves and uh, Dimitri Reeves. That's yeah, the name. yeah, mm-hmm. Dimitri Reeves, and uh, you'll you be able to find him. You can follow him on Twitter too. He he said that he wanted people to spread love and peace and not violence, and so that was kind of his goal. He didn't want to downplay the seriousness of the situation, but people actually responded and said that they were touched and moved and encouraged by his little dance. So. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, kind of a cool, another cool human interest story to it. So in the midst of all the chaos and Baltimore riots, uh, and the very, very serious questions that people on both sides are wrestling with right now, we also see, uh, some of, some of the best of humanity demonstrated here, which I think is pretty inspiring. Yeah. And hopefully that will be true. I mean, that hopefully that is true with regard to Chicago too, that, um, more people will start to publicize those positive stories that are going on and focus less on the Chirac aspect. Definitely. Yeah. And in, in fact, um, there's a, I, I think that things kind of every so often you'll get kind of a glimpse of those things. Um, I have some friends who have a coffee shop in, uh, in Woodlawn called Greenline Cafe. And the whole purpose of the coffee shop is to celebrate all of the great things that have come out of um, the South side of uh, of Chicago. And so recently they were visited by, uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel and, um, and BB King's daughter as well. So it's starting to, you know, get a little bit of a reputation. So I'm always excited when I see those things in the news. That's awesome. All right. Well, we need to cut this discussion off now so we can move into our lifestyle segment and we're going to transition to that now. All right. Well, our lifestyle section. So the big news of today, May 4th, 2015, was a big day for a lot of people out there because this was the release date for the Mumford & Sons latest album. After two years of waiting, right? Because it wasn't the last one in 2013. Right. And they were on this weird uh, sort of indefinite hiatus for a long time. People weren't sure if the band was breaking up or, or what. It was almost... Well, because they were doing some other great stuff, too. They... Uh... I mean, Marcus was doing stuff with, uh, um, uh, he he was doing the new basement tapes. Yeah, yeah. It was a bunch of different artists collaborating on some unreleased Bob Dylan songs, which is a fantastic collection of of, uh, songs. I mean, it's just, it's awesome with um, some of the guys from Dawes, from My Morning Jacket. Speaking of My Morning Jacket, they also just released their most recent album called the waterfall today. So I don't really want that to get overlooked because they're also really good, (laughs) but yeah, so they're all doing different stuff. Like, 
Um, some of the other guys in the band have other kind of collaborative efforts. And uh, so we weren't sure if they were going to come back to right. being Mumford and Sons. Didn't one guy do stand-up comedy or something? Yeah. Well, really? Marshall, <laughs> Marshall took comedy classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade, um, which I don't know if you've heard of that, but Amy Poehler is, has been really involved with that. She was one of the early members, and then she actually st- helped found the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. So he took comedy classes there and played in like this indie group <laughs> somewhere. Um and then Dwayne, I guess he was working on his photography, and um, I'm not sure how you pronounce the last guy's name. Love it? Is it? Sure. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Love it. yeah. Well, he was focused on um, his 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 organization called Communion, I guess, which is an artist-run label and promotional powerhouse that he co-founded in London. So yeah, they were all over the place, just doing a bunch of different things. But but there was uncertainty over what the future of Mumford and Sons was. So even though these guys were doing cool things and they now have cool stories to tell about it, well, it's like, are they ever going to come back together? Right, exactly. Yeah, and it's like, is Zayn Malik going to come back to One Direction? Like, nobody <laughs> knows. <laughs> Oh dear. Yeah, we were reading um, about an interview with them before the actual release um, of Wilder Mind, and they were just saying that that time gave them this opportunity to develop new musical perspectives so that when they came back together, it wasn't like, oh, we've just all been listening to the same music and doing the same thing as they had been on tour. Now we have these new musical perspectives to bring in, and that's going to change the tone of our music, but that's where we are now, and that's what we want to... That's what we want to showcase in our new album. Right. But I, I think yeah, it's really so, cool. I'm sure there's some who are really diehard fans of Mumford's old sound that will kind of bristle at that idea. Yeah, yeah. Can we can we talk about how there's no banjo in this new yeah. album? Yeah. What is up with that? This I mean, the banjo honestly was like sixty percent of the reason why I listened to Mumford in the first place. <laughs> Well, I think you could kind of see that fading out a little bit on Babel because, and I, I loved, there were certain songs on Babel that um, I just loved, like Below My Feet, because it really rocks. Um, so when I, and, and I, I understood from uh, snippets and quotes that this was going to be more of an electric, more of an electric album. Okay. Um, but when, when Believe came out, I was kind of bummed because... Yeah, they're using electric instruments and there's no banjo, but it just didn't seem to rock quite as much as um, some of the some of those um, electric songs on Babel. Well, I think um, Believe is so, more of a transitional song. Um, yeah, because I think a lot of people, when I first heard it, a lot of people were saying, this is Coldplay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I think people are still yeah. saying that. <laughs> I'm yeah, kind of thinking probably. that, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I mean, when when they started yeah. their their first song on the new album, Tompkins Square Park, it it sounds like it starts so melancholy, but in in a different way than Mumford's other stuff, and just the words mm-hmm. make it sound like it's an apology to all their fans for breaking up indefinitely and for changing their sound. <laughs> so like like so here's an example of the lyrics. I never tried to trick you, babe. I just tried to work it out, but I was swallowed up by doubt. If only things were black and white, because I just want to hold you tight. So it's just. <laughs> Like, this is just Marcus telling me, dude, I'm sorry for not making good music for the past couple of years. <laughs> I just needed to hey, figure he, stuff out. he was making good music. It okay. just wasn't with my right. sons. Right, as a group. <laughs> okay, a fair group. enough, yeah. Yeah. No, but I I mean, honestly, that vein is throughout the entire album. It's all really melancholy, yes. all really apologetic. Yeah, like, Sally and I were talking about that. You, I think it's, it's like, different I'm, than their previous albums, because I couldn't find mm-hmm. one song that was more uplifting and positive. Yeah, I think it's just recognizing that, I mean, it's it's the whole album title of Wilder Mind. And, um, you know, it's like, I thought I was something and you thought I was something, but 
everybody changes and evolves and now I'm something different and I don't know if you can love me for what I am now and I don't know if I don't know what we are together anymore. So yeah, I think the whole album is about kind of a personal evolution of sorts. Yeah, the strange thing is though, I'm not sure if they really see themselves as having changed because on the one hand, it seems like it is about them driving home this evolution, but but on the on the other hand, in their Ditmas album, our Ditmas track, uh, they say, you know, this is all I ever was and this is all you came across those years ago. Uh, now you go too far. And then the key line, don't tell me that I've changed because that's not the truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I mean, if you take it out of the romantic context, maybe that is their sort of mo- message that they're trying to get across, possibly that, you know, they haven't changed that. Um, I mean, as I was reading in one interview, they were just saying that our previous albums reflected a real point in time that we had as a, as a group when we were on tour with Sino Moore and Babel. But now we're at a different point and this reflects where we are today. And, and we, and it's not that we reject what we were before, but we we've evolved. So I don't know. It's maybe both. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I well, think maybe, it was, go ahead, Elena. Well, I guess maybe it's, um, you know, you can look at, you can look at a person according to a sliver in time, or you can look at a person according to their entire life biography and, you know, and, um, and either way, uh, if you're looking at the, if you're looking at the whole person according to the whole entire timeline of their life, then that's who they are. And all of those changes are part of who they are in an, in entire, in their entirety. Um, but it, it looks, you know, it's kind of like calculus. If you look at something in a sliver, then it looks one way. And if you, you know, take it a couple notches down the line, then it looks totally different. But that's, but if you look at it as a continuum, it really is all the same thing. So it's just kind of peeling away of the layers and realizing that you knew part of this person before, but now as time goes on, you're, you're learning this other part of them and it looks different, but it's still the same person. I don't know. It's yeah. Yeah. No, I I think it's interesting. I get what you're saying. I mean, it's like all the, the sides of a jewel or something you, you see the different sides of it, but it's still part of the same. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can see that. I mean, I don't think that it's a horrendous departure or repudiation of what they were before. I, I mean, there were some songs where I was like, this is not Mumford. I mean, for instance, yeah. Monster. <laughs> yeah, but Monster uh-huh. was pretty cool, actually. I think that was one, like my favorite of the new sounding songs right. because it had that, that really cool beat. Almost, it almost seemed like it had some R&B influence in the beat itself. Yeah, the rhythm mm. was, was really distinct. Yeah, it was, that was pretty cool. So I actually liked that, but I didn't like all of them. I mean, I thought... Um, the wolf was just a little bit over the top. It didn't sound like Mumford mm-hmm. and they were letting the instrumentals oh, drown out their vocals and their, the drum sounded so synthesized. I don't know if it was a drum machine, but it didn't sound real. It didn't have the, the good, you know, mm. booming bass pedal. Um, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if they pulled it off on this one. Um, I did like some well, of it. I mean, like I said, I liked um, monster. I thought broad shouldered beast was the best song on the album. And probably more, if not most, reminiscent of their older, their, their kind of more folksy acoustic sound. Yeah, the tambourine came back in Broad Shoulder mm-hmm. Beast, so I like Well, that. and the, 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 the lyrics and were more prominent. Right, definitely. The vocals were more front and center. Well, I do think that that's, that's the thing that is kind of the continuity between all of their albums is Marcus's songwriting. Because even in Monster, you know, which you said felt really different, um, he said, uh, to a place of no return, yours is the face that makes my body burn. And here, here's the name that our sons will learn. I mean, that's just, that's Marcus he, talking about our sons and things like, you can just, you can see that it's him. Um, you yeah, might sure. have to look a little closer and actually read the lyrics, you know? Right. Yeah. You have to listen a little harder because 
the lyrics just aren't as prominent. Yeah, but you know, I mean, I didn't listen to Mumford before just to hear his ingenious lyrics. You know, I want those and his music. And I think one of the things I appreciated so much about Mumford and Sons before was they had that they had that sound that sounded so good on vinyl and really made you sound like or made you feel like you were in a coffee house listening to them perform at an open mic night or something like they were they were right there with you and it was deeply intensely personal yeah i can't convince myself that it is that deeply intensely personal experience anymore because i know that they've sat in the studio and they've recorded and re-recorded and added reverb here and reverb there but at the same time i was reading that a lot of those songs just came together in a night like they were just jamming and playing together in their studio um, with the with their producer who was the producer for the National, right? Yeah. And no, he's a member of the National. Oh, a member of the National. Okay. Uh, well, Aaron Desner. And they just came together like late at night in the middle of the night. So I mean, that's pretty authentic. Yeah. Um, I think they said think- Monster and maybe Snake Eyes. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's not authentic. I think it just feels less authentic. Like, yeah, exactly. I, one of my favorite albums, one of my favorite artists of all time is Junior Kimbrough. And he didn't record anything until the 90s, but he was playing for decades and decades. Um, and his albums, even his recordings, they just sound like it's someone playing on their back porch, you know, in the deep south. Um, and it's like you said, it's just really gritty and really personal. And you feel like you're right there with him with a real, you know, with uh, a huge old amp and uh, I mean it's just it's so simple yeah I just love that about that type of sound so and here's he- a question then so if we if we apply the cold stone scale of of desirability <laughs> do we do we like this album do we love this album or is this album a gotta have it album <laughs> and for those who are not familiar with the cold stone scale you need to go to cold stone creamery where they have three sizes for you to get like <laughs> it love it gotta have it and we'll just add one more which is i'm never gonna buy it <laughs> so i'm gonna give i'm gonna give this album a solid like it and the reasons are what i've already explained that they've kind of lost their folksy personal feel with this but also just the super melancholy uh, songs. You know, I used to get uh, motivated by Marcus Mumford's old albums, and this new album just kind of motivates me to go kill myself. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> my. I need to okay, like so. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, I'm exaggerating a lot. <laughs> but it's so melancholy. There's really, no, there's really no encouraging song in this lot. Yeah. And so even though these are good pieces of music, I think they lack that personal feeling, and yet they're still just, they're just such Debbie Downers, so... I'm yeah. gonna go with a like it. Yeah, so I was at at a love it, I think, during my first listen to the album. But then, yeah, thinking about the songs more and realizing that I was waiting for that, um, you know, that that song that 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 one track that would just be really uplifting, and I didn't get it. I think I've dropped below love it, but I don't know. I'm somewhere between like it and love it because mm. I like the new sound, and I know I can go back to listen to their other albums, but. Yeah, I'm torn. I'm torn because of that melancholy tone that you're talking about. Elena, how about you? I'd say I'm in between a like it and a love it, but moving cor- closer to love it. I mean, because I've only listened through... Mm, trending the opposite direction. Yeah. Mm, <laughs> bold move. I've only listened through uh, once. Um, so, And the more I listen to something, the more I get a feel for it. But also, um, I disagree, Zach. I think that with um, even with the most melancholy songs, sometimes they just feel like a release. You know, um, and sometimes the ones that's the ones that you can cathartic. scream, ang- yeah, absolutely cathartic. The ones you can scream at the top of your lungs, um, it just uh, and and also just knowing that, 
you know, if Marcus is going through something dark and he's going to come out something come out brighter on the other end, then I want to I want to stick with him through it and see what happens. So. <laughs> and it is so, I've 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 listened to other bands that are way more of a departure from from their sound than I think this is, um, or more of a departure from who they are um, than I'd say that this album is for Mumford and Sons. So that's yeah. a red herring, though. I mean, to say that other bands have done worse things isn't to say that <laughs> well, this is good. And then, <laughs> well, and then, then just, just as a rebuttal, just as a rebuttal, I, I know what you're saying about the melancholy songs being a release, and I think that's one of the things I liked about the old Mumford stuff. So, like, "Awake My Soul," for example, I love hearing yeah. them sing "Awake My Soul" three times in a row. I don't know, the the melodic tones that they had there and the harmonies were so good, and, and the lyrics and the rest of that song just made it all come together. But on this latest album. The kind of equivalent of that is believe, where they do the same thing. They say it three times, but instead of saying "Awake my soul," they're saying "I don't know if I believe." Mm. Well, now that we've had the last word, we should transition to the next segment. <laughs> All right, where Elena can have the last. The All last right, word. so Elena, let's talk to you next. Coming up. All right, so we're back for our final segment of the podcast. We're going to talk to Elena about all the stuff that she's done. And Elena's done some pretty cool stuff. So uh, she's worked in Dearborn, Michigan uh, with urban populations, largely Muslim populations, I think. Right, Elena? Um, Yeah, in Dearborn. So you worked in Dearborn, and then you went to Thailand for two years, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I lived in Thailand uh, from... September of 2011 to June of 2013. Um, and that was kind of unexpected. I wasn't, uh, I was expecting myself to end up in a Muslim country actually. Um, but so, yeah. So comes... like, what, so what do you mean by that? You mean like you booked the ticket and thought that Bangkok <laughs> was in Saudi Arabia and you're like, I'm going to a Muslim country. No, and I... then like you landed and like, Whoa, this is not what I expected. <laughs> Uh, I had every intention to go to Pakistan, actually. Um, There's something about it that just drew me in. Um, The fact that it was overlooked and it was one of those places where most people think I would never, ever want to go there in in my entire life. Maybe I just, maybe I like the reject. Um, But something about Thailand or about uh, about Pakistan kind of drew me in. Um, And so I, I had, I'd done a lot of research and I had intended to go there, um, with, uh, an organization that did, um, kind of ministry and development. Um, but in, uh, May of 2011 is when, or April rather, um, was when, um, the U S went in and took out Osama bin Laden. So tensions were high between the United States and Pakistan. And I knew a bunch of uh, a bunch of Brits and a bunch of Americans whose visas were being revoked. So it was kind of like, I don't know if I want to spend the money to travel over there only to get three months of trying to learn the language before I can even talk to anyone. And then, um, and then, you know, possibly get kicked out of the country again. Cause I know people who are still trying to get back into Pakistan. So, um, 
So anyways, uh, an opportunity opened up to go to Thailand and it was such a departure from what I, from what I had expected, but the doors just flew wide open and, um, from learning about the opportunity to arriving in the country was about 10 weeks. So, (laughs) wow. Well, tell us more about Thailand. What was your, what was your living situation like there? Um, I was actually living in, uh, a slum, uh, or an urban poor community on the northeast corner of Bangkok. Um, so Bangkok is the capital city of Thailand. Um, and, uh, it's quite touristy and industrial, uh, in certain areas, or rather, um, not industrial, but very commercial in, uh, in certain areas. Um, so we were a little bit more removed from, from that part of the city. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the organization that I was there working with the Thai Peace Foundation, um, and the American part that kind of, uh, that partnered with them was called Servant Partners. Um, and they focused on doing community development and, um, and church planting in the slums of, of Bangkok. I've heard that Bangkok has a red light district. Can you tell us about that? It, it's it's quite a sight to see. Um, so you have a couple of different streets. Uh, one would be like Soy Cowboy, uh, where they have it, it's just it's as flashy as as you can imagine. Um, and there are bars with women available for for purchase or for you know for rent. Um, and it's it's really quite a quite a striking image. Um, and wow. it's just, uh, it, it's a lot of girls who are, who are put into difficult situations of coming from the country and trying to make money to send back to their families. And, um, and a lot of them enter voluntarily into prostitution. Um, but, uh, very few, <laughs> it's not, it's certainly not a, a trade that anyone stays in because they enjoy it. And unfortunately there's drugs and, and a lot of other things involved there, but it's, it's quite a flashy part of the city. And when you're there, you know, you're there, you know, you, you know, wow. stumbled upon the red light district in Thailand. So when you, so you just described this scene to me that sounds horrible and it sounds like it's out of, um, I don't know, out of a terrible movie or something. Yeah. Um, was it hard? So after seeing this type of thing, you're, where you're seeing, you know, up close and personal, the ugliness of human trafficking, was it hard to, I don't know, I guess, I guess I'm not really forming this question very well. What, but how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you have a sort of conceptual framework for, for meeting that reality? How do you, um, how do you deal with that if you can't, if you can't engage the problem, uh, or engage the problem fully? And then, you know, how do you transition from a place like that back to comfortable suburban America? Well, I think, uh, maybe it just helped me to realize that there aren't too many problems that you can really engage fully, you know, even going, even talking back to what we were saying earlier about Baltimore and how it starts with, um, it starts with, uh, with the history of a neighborhood and the people who live there and the, your parents and what your grandparents have gone through. Um, and, uh, in Thailand, there are actually a lot of ways that I found it was very similar to the suburban Chicago where I grew up because it was very consumer oriented, you know, very materialistic. Um, and in order to be 
kind of a participant in culture in order in order to find your place of sorts and to have a sense of of belonging you had to participate in that materialistic culture you know you had to have the the whitening skin whitening cream for your skin and you had to have the the cute clothes and you had to be trendy and in order to do that you had to have money and and in order to have money you know, some girls chose to, uh, to enter into prostitution. So it's, it, it kind of, I suppose it teaches you that you can't really engage too many things fully, that most things are beyond our grasp. And, um, and we, we only have the opportunity and the, and the privilege to, to kind of chip away at it wherever we happen to encounter it. Um, you know, it's, and maybe it's also like Marcus Mumford's evolution of sorts in that way that you get to engage with, um, with what you have right now and you get to decide how you're going to deal with it. Um, so I suppose you're kind of meeting people where they are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so, so in, in Thailand, for example, in Bangkok, um, I, I interacted with, um, with some kids who, uh, my friends had a ministry to kids, uh, children of refugees from Cambodia because Cambodia is extremely poor. And even though there there's poverty in Thailand is nothing compared to poverty in Cambodia. And so parents would cross the border illegally and they would be cooped up in their homes because the police would, you know, just as quick as anything, send them back to Cambodia. Um, so they would send their kids out during the day and well, even more during the night and the kids would sell flowers or, you know, you'd get a coin in exchange for letting a man pinch your cheek or something like that. And so it's really, it's degrading and it's, and it's horrible. But, um, these are the opportunity that we had to interact with these kids would be in the slow hours, either, you know, in the beginning or the end of the night when there wouldn't be too many customers out yet. And that we would bring coloring books or bring word puzzles or things like that to play with the kids. So you you just have this tiny little um, intersection into their with their lives and yours where you have the opportunity to uh, to show love to them, I suppose, and to to give them a sense of belonging and community. And so you just take advantage of that where you have it. Um, so I guess in coming back to the United States, I I realized that that's exactly the same thing as what's going on in the suburbs. You know, everybody wants a sense of belonging and a sense of community. And I think that in the suburbs of, uh, at least the suburbs that I've grown up in, it's kind of, um, the same illusion that you have to, you have to have money or you have to have the American dream or you have to have, um, the house with four bedrooms. Um, you know, you have to be making a certain number of money, a certain amount of money, and, you know, your kids have to be successful, and uh, they have to make it into the right schools. And so it's like all these things that we feel like we have to do in order to have a sense of community and belonging. And so in the small opportunities when you do get to interact with someone and and, and you find that they're exhausted from trying so hard, you know, you, you get... Um, just a moment in t- a brief moment in time to to let them know that they're loved and that that they're welcome. Um, so I, I suppose in those ways, I, I came back from Thailand and I realized that Thailand is not so different from the United States, and uh, and the suburbs aren't so different from the city in essence. So having made that transition, are there still things about Thai culture that you prefer to American culture that you've that you wish you could go back to or you wish that American culture would assimilate? Um, that's a good question, I guess. Um, 
I mean, there's just so many unique things. Uh, I guess there are things that I love about America and things that I love about Thailand, things that really drove me up the wall about Thailand, too. <laughs> um, but I suppose you can say that when you love a place. You can you can nitpick when you love it. Um, but um, I guess there, there were just some things about Thailand, um, and maybe it was just kind of the simplicity of the life that I had. You know, I didn't have internet in my house. I didn't. I, I we had electricity and we had uh, we had some plumbing, um, but uh, yeah, it was it was a very simple life. So I would wake up in the morning and I did not check my phone because I didn't have internet, and I didn't get on the computer until I got into the office at 10 a.m. Um, so those were some really great. And you probably had like a dial-up connection at work or something. Um, we had really spotty Wi-Fi. <laughs> Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. And there were th some things that I was really grateful that Thailand had, like there were Starbucks in Thailand, thank the Lord. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I guess. And then there were just some things about Thailand. Um, you know, I was, so I mentioned I was, I did some church planting and community development. So there was a little church that I was involved with. Um, it was led by Thai people. Um, and it was mostly Thai, um, and uh, it was just a really unique little place or a little community because it stood out so much from the neighborhood that we lived in, um, you know, and, and it, it was so countercultural. Maybe it's even more, maybe it's possible to be even more countercultural when you're in a place as extreme as, as uh, an urban poor community. But, um, for example, you know, there were two people that I think of uh, in, and in a place like Thailand where you spend your life um, trying to, trying to fit in and, and trying to fit in through materialism and through what you make and things like that. Um, there was one man who used to, uh, he used to be kind of a bookkeeper or treasurer for our little church. And it was discovered that he had stolen money. And, um, uh, and it's Thailand is a country where you spend your life running away from debts you know, and you, you accumulate a debt here and then you, you run to another city and start over again and you accumulate a debt there and you have to run away again. Um, there are so many people who've, who've spent their lives running away like that. And this man, um, even when it was found out that he had stolen from us, um, you know, after, after he was reprimanded or rebuked and, um, and forgiven, he stayed. And I think that was something really unique. Um, and maybe that's more unique to, um, to the churches that I've been involved with, because I think, I suppose I see that as much in America and, um, and the place where I'm at now as I did in Thailand, you know, when you've got people around you who know, um, who know everything about you and still love you, uh, that's something that's unique and countercultural. So I suppose maybe maybe that's the thing that I love the most about Thailand, and I love the most about America, um, or at least where I'm at right now is uh, is that sense of community and being known and belonging. So, um, but let's see other so things. So you haven't about talked Thailand. very much about you haven't talked very much about where you are now. What are you doing now? Well, right now I work for a mental health organization, so we do counseling and medication management for people who um, who have mental health issues, or even you know, even if it's a situational thing like um, a family crisis or something like that. Everything from that to schizophrenia. I mean, it's a pretty pretty big spectrum um, of challenges. But um, so one thing that I, that's really important to me in the work that I do now is 
working to kind of break down the barriers and end end the stigma that uh, sorry I'm going to repeat that because of your ding. Um, one of the things that that's really important to me about what I do now is breaking down barriers and ending the stigma associated with mental health because um, I think that's one of the things that separates that that exacerbates the problem often. But it's in the separation that we feel and the isolation. And when we can't tell people about the things that we're dealing with, um, uh, and another thing that I've that I've gotten excited about recently, um, even besides work, is is uh, financial planning because I, I find that that's another issue that that affects people whether you're in whether you're in Englewood or suburban Chicago or uh, or Thailand. You know, learning how to how to manage your money instead of trying to hide behind it is one of the ways that we can we can learn to be more honest as a community and we can learn to be more generous and uh and wise with the resources that we have so when i see a direct connection uh when you're talking about how thailand and suburban america are both suffering from the problem of consumerism i see direct connection between that problem that you so well articulated and have identified with your desire to help people plan their money you know or plan the use of their money better yeah. Even people with mental health problems, I mean, I think depression can sometimes be a result of a very empty kind of materialistic culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, when you live in uh, a place where people drive into their their two, their attached garage and, and never meet their neighbors or have any connection, and um, and everybody thinks that everything's fine, which makes you feel even worse when it's not fine, you know, and the fact that you don't feel like you can tell anybody about it. Yeah, it's it's really all about having a sense of, of community with one another and learning how to, to be open about the things that we're struggling with, whether it's money or mental health or, um, you know, or in, in Thailand, you know, a desire to belong, um, and a desire to be part of, of the, the greater culture. I think those are, yeah, you know, actually I, I, when you were talking about how a suburban America was similar to Thailand in many ways, my first reaction was to was to push back and say, oh, "What are you talking about? You just identified, or you just told me about walking in the red light district of Bangkok, where you saw, you know, teenage girls. They were able to, you know, they were basically offering themselves to be rented, um, or being pimped out. You know, maybe even against their will. Who knows? But you saw this happening in Bangkok. I don't see that happening when I walk through Chicago. You know, and so it's it's very different in that way." But at the same time, I think what you're saying, and if this is what you're saying, I agree with you. You know, we in, in suburban America or rural America or urban America, uh, we all have the same problems, but they manifest themselves in different ways. And so, you know, we're all human beings and we all share that. And we're no better than than the people in the, you know, the people who do these things in Thailand because we're all suffering from deficiencies of our own in some way. And basically, I think you know, materialism or prosperity helps you hide those things. Yeah. It's the same kind of existential crisis of sorts, but we can mask it better with our, what we have available to us in America. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, in that, in, in that regard, even just looking at the, the, the difference between urban America or the challenges of urban America and the challenges of suburban America, um, you know, it's really not that that different. You've got middle class Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck just as much as the poor of Chicago, but we can hide behind it easier, you know, because um, we have credit cards. Yeah, and <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and when the when the family next door goes bankrupt, you know, you don't know that that that's what happened. You just think they maybe they moved away. But um, 
but, and I, I think, you know, that goes back to, uh, Baltimore as well, that I think that one of, one of the things that I find really beautiful about, um, about, uh, poor urban communities is that they're really not afraid to tell you what's going on in their lives. You know, they're, they're not afraid to tell you what they're mad about or, uh, or what they're happy about, you know, even if it's all ups and down, ups, all ups and downs, um, they're still, they're open with you and they're honest with you and they're not, they're not trying to mask or cover up what's going on. So I think that that's, that's something that everybody really desires is to be more honest about who they are. I think everyone, everyone wants to try to be authentic in some way, but, um, I think all too often we end up conforming all over again to, um, to what the world's idea of authentic ought to be anyways. But at least in starting to, talk about the things that you're struggling with. I think that that's, uh, and, and to admit that there's struggles, you know, not to, not to glorify them. You know, nobody, nobody who has depression says, Oh, I'm so, you know, this is just me. This is just who I am. This is just who I want to be, you know, but they say, this is what I struggle with. This is, this is tough for me. Um, and it allows people to get close to you. And I think that's what everybody really desires. I think one, I mean, maybe a good note to end on is just sort of the question of what do we do about it? And I'd like to hear your thoughts briefly on that. But I think the biggest thing in my mind is know your neighbor. Uh, and I think that's a problem that a lot of Americans have, especially in suburban America, where you said, you know, the family next door moves out because they go bankrupt, but you just think they move away. Well, if you know your neighbor, you don't have that problem. I think if you if you make an effort to know your neighbor, we have, we have thriving communities. We have uh, communities that rally around individuals who need help. And we don't have individuals who are feeling like they don't have hope we don't have individuals who um, are feeling like there's no one to whom they can turn with their problems, and so I think know your neighbor is is a really big kind of kind of um, practical solution that we can take away. And I mean it in a very real sense. Like you know, we can walk out of our door uh, today and go meet our neighbor. You know, invite our neighbors over to share a meal with us or something. And I think if everyone in America did that, I think we could be really alarmed at the results. Yeah, that's a good challenge. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and I think once again, just like just like the uh, the story of um, feeding lunch to people in Baltimore, uh, I think that there are a lot of examples of that that would never make the news. Um, you know, you've got cops who who really attempt to befriend some of the kids who spend their lives on the on city streets, and um, and they. They want to break down the uh, animosity that happens between the, the power structures and the people who um, who who feel or are the victims, um, and you know, and just making an attempt to kind of cross those those barriers that we tend to put up between ourselves and others, or that others tend to put up around themselves. You know, those are the things that um, that make genuine human connection possible and start to heal a lot of those, those things that, um, that ail our nation and our world. Well said. Um, well, we've almost exhausted our time here, uh, but this was a great discussion and we want to thank you for sharing all these stories with us and weighing in on Marcus Mumford, uh, and his band's latest album, as well as the uh, Baltimore riots and everything. 
Before you go, we have one more question for you. One more question for you. We know, though you didn't mention it, um, you did mention your love of Starbucks, but you didn't mention that one job you've held recently before your work with the mental health <laughs> services clinic was working at Starbucks. So yeah, seems like you're the best person to ask, but um, tell us, just to get a little more insight into you as a person, Elena, what's your go-to everyday Starbucks drink and what's your splurge, you know, once in a while kind of Starbucks drink? Um, I, my everyday Starbucks drink, uh, if it's warm outside, then I'll get an iced coffee with, uh, with half and half. And if it's cold outside, then I'll get a regular coffee with half and half. And sometimes I'll get cinnamon dolce syrup in it. Um, but my splurge, like when I, when I worked at Starbucks, the thing that I would just kind of make for myself, I would get, um, a hazelnut macchiato brevet. And, um, so brevet is made with half and half. So it's really rich and you get it with a little less the sweetener and with that awesome hazelnut drizzle and it is really good, but you only need the short size. It's like even smaller than a tall, but, um, I didn't know that yeah, it's really good. So it's, it's really rich. Awesome. Yeah. That well, sounds so good. I'll have to try that next time we go to Starbucks. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Elena. It was a pleasure to talk yeah, to you. Thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we can chat again soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was great talking with you. part of our podcast where we open up our inbox to read wonderful messages from our fans. Unfortunately, we don't have any messages yet. Well, we didn't know. Let's check. Oh, right. Let's check our inbox. Oh, yep. No messages. Hopefully that doesn't mean we don't have any fans either, but at the very very least, (laughs) we don't have any messages. This is just a big echo chamber every week. (laughs) So if you listen to this, send us a message, email us and let us know what you liked about the podcast, what you didn't like, what you thought worked, what didn't work, what you want to hear on next week's podcast. All right. I think that about wraps it up for us here at Vernacular Podcast for episode two. Please don't forget to check us out on the web if you have not already done so, vernacularpodcast.com. Also follow us on Twitter at VernacularPod. We will look forward to hearing from you there. All right. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a good week.